invite you to open your Bible with me this morning to the book of Hebrews, letter to the Hebrews, chapter 4. As we let God speak to us through His Word, by His Spirit, so that we can be built up and encouraged in our faith. We need Sundays. We need to come time after time, week after week, to be reminded again of things that we probably already know but tend to forget. And, and when God reminds us, He just runs that groove maybe a little deeper on your soul, and you find that you're being strengthened and you're growing, uh, you're being sanctified, you're being prepared for uh, eternity. That's what we're about here today. Uh, that's what God's about here today. Let's give our attention then to uh, God's Word. Remember, the, the writer here is writing to Christians who are suffering. They're being persecuted. Life is very hard, and some of them are being tempted to give up and just go back to the Jewish faith uh, that they, uh, from which they came. And uh, he's, he's writing them to continue on, to carry on, and encourages them then to that end. Let's uh, begin at verse 14 of chapter 4, and we'll read through 5 verse 10. Hebrews 4, verse 14. This is God's word. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin." Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. He says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was, was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The title of my message this morning is, Since Then, Let Us. Since Then, Let Us. As, as you know, as you go through life, you find that there are certain things you do, certain choices that you make because of a prior or uh, outstanding reality, a, a decision that's dictated by something that's true. Uh, for instance, maybe if um, you are uh, young and madly in love, you might say to your uh, beloved, uh, since then we are truly in love and we want to spend the rest of our lives together, let us then get married. Um, maybe a little farther on down the road, you might say, uh, since then we are pregnant, let us make plans for a child. Uh, we did that several times. Uh, where, uh, really? Well, we better start planning for that. 
that's how life unfolds sometimes. Since then, we've run out of room in the car. Let us then buy a minivan, as some, as some of you have, have gone through that process. Uh, since it's cold and snowy and uh, January in Michigan, let us then go to Florida. And some of you are making plans even as I speak. <clears throat> uh, you get the drift. There are realities that dictate decisions and dictate actions. And what is true in general life is true in spiritual life. The, the writer here is urging his readers to do a certain thing, to run to the throne of divine sovereign grace so they can get help. They need help. And he's telling them the help is available, but you need to go get it. You need to go and seek it and find it. And uh, the thing that will drive them to do that is the reality upon which they stand. There is a reality that makes such going a unnecessary thing, a delightful thing, uh, and gives them boldness in the doing of it. Our text this morning, you see, is, is about living before God with confidence. Confidence matters to the writer. He speaks of it often. Chapter 3, 6, if we, we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence. 314, we've come to share in Christ if we hold to our original confidence. 416, let us with confidence draw near the throne of grace. Why is he so concerned about conviction, confidence? Remember when he defines faith, he defines it this way. Faith is the conviction of things not yet seen, the assurance of things hoped for. Well, he's concerned because it's necessary um, to continue in the faith if we're going to live as Christians. And, and faith in Jesus Christ is a wholehearted leaning with confidence on who he is and what he's said he would do. That's what real faith is. It's not simply intellectual assent saying, I agree with certain doctrinal propositions. The Christian faith is a leaning on Casting yourself upon with confidence, throwing everything else in a sense to the side. And all of our hope goes upon this thing. And, he, and he's talking about confidence because he's just said some scary things. If you remember from the last time we were in the book, he talked about the tragedy of ancient Israel. People who had been delivered out of Egypt by the mighty hand of God, and they were on the border of the promised land, and, and they sent the spies in to, to scope it out and come back with a report, and the spies came back, 10 of them, and said, it's hopeless, um, the Nephilim are there, God can't deliver us into the promised land. We need to go back to Egypt. The writer here reminds us in 4 chapter 6, some of those who formerly received the good news, it's the same word for the gospel, some of those who received the gospel failed to enter the land because of their disobedience. And he takes that example and he applies it directly to his readers. 3.12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Chapter 411, let us 
Therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The same sort of disobedience is functional unbelief. The people who were led through the Red Sea, they believed in God. They, um, they followed Moses. They were happy to be out of Egypt. But when the crisis came, their, their faith just withered away. The, the things that were true about God, the things that they had seen about God were forgotten. And it turns out that actually what they really wanted above everything, above the glory of God, above uh, uh, seeking that better country that God had promised, what they really wanted was security. And they thought they would be better as slaves back in Egypt. And so the writer, you see, is reminding them of things that we, that we, um, that we need to be reminded of, that apostasy is real. People do fall away from the living God. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that true saints can be lost. Jesus says, knowing that you've given to me is lost. But people who profess faith can be lost, can fall away from that faith. Apostasy is real. And striving is necessary. Let us strive to enter that rest. Chapter 4, verse 11. The Christian life doesn't happen by accident. You don't just sort of fall into sanctification and, and, and just sort of fall into the promised land. Striving is necessary. Well, well what does striving look like? Because it sounds like trying harder. It sounds like maybe doing more, believing more, um, being just a, a better Christian, a more serious Christian. And, and while that's true, it's not true in the way that we tend to think. Because we tend to think, then it's up to what we're going to do. And the writer here now immediately goes to not what we do, but what we have. What well, we have. So I just have two points this morning. Since then, let us. Since then points us to something. Points us to what we have. Since then we have. You see, Christian confidence is rooted in what we've already received. Not what we wish we had. Not what we hope someday to obtain. There are many people in the church who hope someday that they will be a good enough Christian that they can have confidence and joy in the faith. And they're striving and trying to get to that place. Well, you'll never get there. Because that's not Christianity. That's just legalism. That's moralism. The Christian confidence is rooted in what we've already received, what's already ours. Colossians 3 uh, verse 1, Paul speaks the same way. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Since you've already experienced the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in your life for you, you've been united to him. Since that is all true, then set your minds on things that are above where Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. We need to remember what we have. We can easily make the mistake, and, and some of us do this easily, and I'm probably up close to the front of that line, of thinking about what we lack as Christians. The faith that we see in other people and we say, I wish I had a faith like that. The spiritual strength we see in other people and we think, I wish I had that. The wisdom that's there, the gentleness, the gratitude, the, the hunger for God, all the, all the things that we, we sense, we, don't, we, don't, we lack those things, at least in the proportions that we see it in others. And that's probably true. 
There are all sorts of areas where uh, you lack. To, you, you fall short of being the Christian you want to be. I think every Christian would say that of themselves. But you see, that, that's just a very small part of the truth about you. It's not the most important, not the most essential truth about you if you're a Christian. You see, to, to focus primarily on our, on our lack or our weaknesses as if those were the determining realities of our life would be like uh, looking at a fully functioning M1 Abrams tank and noticing that the paint is chipping. Okay. Yeah, the, the paint's chipping. I think it's going to be okay. Christian, you have some paint chipping? Yeah, you do. I do. And sometimes it chips in ugly and embarrassing ways. Sometimes it's shameful what's exposed beneath that chipped paint. But you see, if you're a Christian, you're going to be okay. It's, it's paint. And God knows what to do with it. And, and, and there's something true about you, you see, that the chipped paint doesn't touch, doesn't affect. You're a child of God. You belong to Jesus Christ. You have a great high priest. And that's what the writer just reminds us of what we have. He reminds us of who Jesus is. We have Jesus and, and let's just unpack shortly this morning, uh, if you have your Bible, just encourage you to follow along because it's so, every word is beautiful and, and it, it's great just to see it spring right out of the text. Since then, we, which are glad that, that we get to be involved in this and part of this, we have a great high priest. We have a high priest. That might not seem immediately helpful to you or it might not seem immediately relevant it might not connect for you and, and, and me the way it would with these original readers. Of course, they're primarily Jewish Christians who've been born and raised in the Jewish faith. And um, they get what high priests do. It's a little distant for us. It, it sounds primitive, what, what ancient religions used to do. And we're not sure what a high priest actually is for. Is he like the, is he the boss? Is he the, like the pope? Is he a figurehead? He just wears... Uh, religious clothes and does religious things? Well, in 5.1, the writer tells us exactly what a priest is for. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's what a high priest is for, to act on behalf of men in relationship to God and specifically dealing with this issue of sin, which is the very thing that stands between men and God. A high priest is a magnificent thing. You think of Old Testament Israel, Aaron and, and all those who followed after him. They were responsible for, for overseeing the offering of sacrifices and the, the prayers that would go up on the altar of incense. They were, in a sense, the link between Israel, the people of Israel, and this thrice holy God who is so terrifying in his holiness that when he shows up on Mount Sinai, the people are terrified and say, we're not going anywhere near that place. Moses, you go. 
But the high priest, you see, made it possible for God and man to be in the same camp. And there was a tabernacle there in the midst of the camp, and God dwelt there in the Holy of Holies. And the high priest would take the blood once a year, and only the high priest can do this. He would take blood from the altar, and he would sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant there where, where the, the law of God was there in the Ark. The law that, that shows Israel how sinful they actually are, and yet blood is sprinkled, and God says, I will remember their sins no more. Sin is actually dealt with. All in shadow form, pointing to Christ, but it's really dealt with, and the evidence of that is, is God tells the priest, now when you're done with that, you go out, and you stand in front of the people, and you pronounce my blessing over them, the Lord bless you. Not condemn you. The Lord keep you. Not destroy you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Not turn away his faith in anger or in wrath. All this, you see, the high priest accomplishes. What a magnificent, marvelous thing a high priest truly is. This one who acts on behalf of sinful men before a holy God. Now, those who are not concerned about a relationship with God, to them a high priest is utterly useless and irrelevant. Uh, I think Gloria Steinem, at least she's credited, was saying that back in the heyday of feminism, um, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. A woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. Actually, she stole that from a philosopher who had said, God, men need God like a fish needs a bicycle. And for uh, some of you boys and girls who are trying to put, fish don't need bicycles. <clears throat> men need God like fish need bicycles. Men have no need for God. Well, if that's your, if that's your place, then a high priest is utterly useless to you. Or if you're a person who believes in God, but you don't really get the whole sin thing, it doesn't seem like you're that bad of a person, you can't imagine that God might be, would be offended, um, then a high priest is really not going to be valuable to you. Whatever Jesus is as a high priest, you're willing to sort of accept that, but there's no value, there's no inherent treasure in that. Because frankly, you, you, you don't sense a need for one. You believe in God, and you think God believes in you, and, and, and you're willing just to sort of live your life like that. And you're, you're sure that God knows your heart and your good intentions, and that will be sufficient for whatever, um, whatever sins God might be concerned about. And so you see, if that's how you live, and so many people around us live exactly like that, a high priest, if you try to tell them about Jesus, do you, do you know Jesus is a high priest? They just, makes no sense. But you see, if you're a person who is cognizant of the truth about you, the, the, the sinful truth about you, you're cognizant of, the, of your greedy, coveting, lying, lusting heart and all the sins that flow out of that heart, sins secret and public, things that you've actually said, things that you've done, things that you've thought, and things that God sees and knows. The writer reminded us, no creature, chapter 4, 13, is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. 
You see, if, if you're cognizant of those things, and you, you tremble at the thought of standing before a God, this God, and giving an account for why did you do that? You see, that's what an account is. Why did you say that? Why did you do that? An account then is also, there's a, there's a sense that God will respond to our crimes. So if you've ever cried out like the Apostle Paul, oh wretched man that I am, the good that I, I would, I do not, but the evil that I would not, that I do. That there's something within me that is prone to wander. It's prone to sin. I know I shouldn't lose my temper, and yet I do. And I know I should be thankful, but I'm not. And I know I should not lust, but it happens, and, and, and it sickens me. You see, if, if you're cognizant of those things, then a high priest who is, who is able to actually intercede on your behalf and to act on your sake before God. A high priest who offers gifts and sacrifices that truly atones for sin and, and brings divine pardon for sin. You see, then what could possibly be more valuable? What could be more prized and esteemed and treasured than such a high priest who is able to reconcile you to God? I came across an article this last week. Uh, it came up uh, concerning the Olympics. As it remembers back, the last time Seoul had the Olympics, um, a, a lady named Miss Kim, about my age now, I suppose, as a young woman, she was uh, chosen by the North Korean military to be a spy. And in 1987, uh, she left a time bomb in the uh, overhead compartment of a career, Korean airliner and walked off. And that thing took off, and shortly later, 115 people lost their lives as the bomb went off. And the intent was to, uh, as a terrorist act, to put a kibosh on the Olympics in, in Seoul, that the world would say, we're not, we're not going there. That was, that was the intent. Well, uh, she was given um, cyanide pills to, if she, if she were captured, it was her and another agent, and if they were captured, they were supposed to bite down on that pill and, and die, lest they share secrets. Well, the other one, uh, the other, uh, they both took the pill. Uh, the one agent died. She, for whatever reason, did not. She now lives a quiet life in, North, in South Korea, uh, realizing she had been lied to and, her, uh, and, and agonizing over what she did. And now it's really sort of public again. She's married, has two sons, goes to church. But she said that her deadly role um, is something that leaves her sorry and ashamed Quote, can my sins be pardoned, she said. They probably won't be. And I wanted to reach out and, and just tell her, oh, but they, they can be. Is there, is there forgiveness even for someone who kills 115 innocent people, most of them businessmen on their way home to their families? Can you be forgiven for something like that? For literally killing them on purpose? Yeah, yeah, it can be. This, that's the high priest that we have. He's able, he's able to, to act on behalf of guilty murderers and adulterers and thieves, liars, 
Do you know how many people there are in, in the world and in the church who, who don't believe that their sins can actually be completely pardoned? They hope it could possibly be the case, but they don't have confidence. And the writer here, you see, he, he, he wants to give confidence. Some of, these, some of these Christians maybe have been tempted to, to apostatize. Maybe some of them have. Maybe they've just walked away and they've gone back and, and he's, he's pleading with them. You can be forgiven. You can be forgiven. You see, because we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus' ministry is so much superior to that of Aaron. Aaron and those who followed him would go through the tent that separated the rest of the tabernacle from the Holy of Holies. But Jesus has entered into the heavens. He's gone into the true heaven, the the, the true temple, into the very presence of God. Chapter 9, 24, Christ entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And there he offered a greater sacrifice. He didn't carry like Aaron did the blood of a lamb or a bull. Jesus brought his own precious blood. Hebrews 9, 12, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So that sinners can say, actually, truly, my hope is built, founded on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. My hope, your hope, for your eternal salvation can be rooted in, founded on this great high priest who's gone into heaven itself carrying his very own blood before the the throne of God and securing then eternal redemption. It's a greater temple, a greater sacrifice, and a greater person because the one who has accomplished this is Jesus, the man who is the son of God. The human and divine natures both highlighted. Only, you see, a God-man can reconcile God and man. We needed exactly this sort of high priest. Jesus, the man, born of a virgin, the man from Nazareth, fully man in every way, so that he could obey as man in our place. He could bear our guilt as man in our place. He could receive our condemnation as man in our place, experience our death as man in our place, and accomplish our eternal life as man in our place. That's what Jesus the man accomplished. And because you see, he is the son of God, co-eternal with the Father, he is able to offer a sacrifice of infinite value, sufficient to cover the sins of all men, able to minister in the heavenly temple, and completely sufficient to bring you, the sinner, into the family of God as a redeemed saint. This is your Jesus. This is your high priest. It's what he accomplished. And he's a sympathizing high priest. We don't have a a high priest, 15, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. This is so precious. To think that Jesus, the Son of God, with all the power and strength and glory that that entails, 
This Jesus who reigns at the right hand of God, all authority belonging to him, this Jesus can sympathize with you in your weakness. Not by divine ability, not by divine omniscience, but by human experience. He was tempted, the writer says, as we are in every respect. Now, people have wrestled with that. How could Jesus, being perfect himself, experience temptation like we do? We have a willing, wicked flesh that likes sin. So aren't we at a disadvantage? Well, possibly. The other side is that Jesus, you see, experienced temptation uh, far greater than you have ever experienced because you give in and I give in. Have you ever really tried to resist Again, by the grace of God, we can do. But left to yourself, if you just try to white-knuckle a temptation, you're, you're cooked. Jesus resisted and 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 resisted until the blood was pressed out of his body in drops of sweat. So don't think that somehow Jesus' temptations were less than yours. He was tempted in so many ways and so many times. Immediately when he begins his ministry, he's in the wilderness, and the devil himself shows up to tempt him. And then Peter tempts him. You're the Christ. You're not going to die. Stop talking like that. And Jesus being tempted when his disciples just completely don't get it. You still not understand. How in the world is he going to change the world with these men? And then he's tempted when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and the reality of what he's about to face is pressing him literally into the ground. And then he's on the cross and the men have the audacity to say, If you're the Christ, then come down from the cross and save yourself. You don't think he was tempted? to exercise his divine authority, to manifest his divine identity, and to bring judgment immediately upon those who are speaking? And he doesn't. Because he all of his life committed himself to obey his father. He's, he's tempted as we are. But you see, Jesus' experience in this world, in, in human form and flesh, means that Jesus does really know our every weakness. He, he experienced weakness. Jesus knows temptation. Jesus knows betrayal. He knows what it feels like to be betrayed. Jesus knows grief. He knows heartache. Jesus knows loss because he experienced them. That means that there's not a single temptation or trial, and the word can mean either one. There's not a single temptation or trial that you will experience in this life of which Jesus is not able to say with all sincerity and full integrity, I know. I know. That's inestimably precious. You're not alone. Jesus actually does know. You got a broken heart today? You got a, a grieving, wounded spirit today? You're battling with some great temptation today. Jesus knows. Because he experienced it. He's able to sympathize. 
I get confused about the difference between sympathy and empathy, and so I looked it up. And here's what I found. To sum up the difference between the most commonly used meanings of these two words is this. Sympathy is feeling compassion, sorrow, or pity for the hardship that another person encounters, while empathy is putting yourself in the shoes of another. You see, friends, the reason that Jesus can sympathize is because he empathized. He literally put himself in your shoes. He experienced life in this world, and it hurt. It hurt. 5 verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Although he was a son, verse 8, he learned obedience through what he suffered. When you, when you think about Jesus' ministry and you have a, maybe a mental image in your mind of, of what that would look like, what do you picture Jesus doing? Most of us have some maybe Sunday school picture or um, some image of Jesus cheerfully healing the sick or walking on the water, uh, maybe strolling down sunlit dirt roads with his disciples, maybe a child on his knee, maybe dining in the home of Mary or Martha. When's the last time you saw in your mind Jesus on his knees in the dark weeping in prayer with loud cries and supplications before his father? See, friends, the Jesus who saved us is a Jesus who suffered with us as well as for us. And that's a precious thing we cannot forget. In verse 2, we saw that a high priest was appointed from among men so that he could deal gently with the ignorant and, and the wayward since he himself was beset with weakness. And, and the same was true of Jesus. Though he's not beset with sinful weakness, never having sinned, Jesus deals gently with the ignorance and waywardness of your life because he suffered and he was tempted. And though he never succumbed to sin, he knows the trials and sorrows of life. He's a sympathizing high priest. But most importantly, he's a saving high priest, finally, verse 5, verse 9. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. What he's, a, what he's done, you see, friends, as our high priest, is he's opened up the path to everlasting life. He is the one who's opened up a way to the Father. All those who come, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. But those who come by me will find the Father, will find everlasting life, will find infinite and eternal joy, grace, mercy from God. The question, friend, for you is, 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 have you gone to him for that? Have you gone to Jesus not just for moral teaching? Have you gone to Jesus not just for emotional encouragement or, uh, or, or support? Uh, but have, have you gone to Jesus for this one thing? Jesus, I am the sinner. I need a high priest. I need your blood to be uh, atoned to atone for my sin. I need you to do your ministry that only you can do in the presence of God the Father. And then, and then casting yourself on Jesus to believe it is finished. To believe it is accomplished. This is what we have as professing, believing Christians. We have this Jesus. You don't just have a faith. You don't just have a tradition. You don't have a religion. You have Jesus as your high priest to carry out this ministry 
on your behalf. So let us then, since we have, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Your, your weakness, your sin, your failure, your shame, your hurt, none of it needs to keep you away. There is a throne of grace, wonderful combination of words, a throne signifying strength and power and authority and grace, the favor and kindness and love of everlasting God for you. And you can go there with confidence in all of your weakness and all of your sin and all of your failure. You can go with confidence to that almighty throne, believing, knowing it is a throne of grace. And you go there on purpose. You go there with intent. The writer says, draw near so that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's a blessing to be procured. And if you're not going to the throne of grace for the blessing, there's no point in going. Go there to receive mercy, which is the compassion and pity and comfort and care of God. David says in Psalm 26, I believe it's verse 5, Lord, I am lonely and afflicted. Be merciful to me. You can pray that prayer at the throne of grace and, and know that you might receive Mercy there. And you can expect to find grace there. Grace that covers sin. I will remember their sins no more. That's the covenant promise. I will be a God to them and they will be my people. And one day... No more death, no more dying, and no more sin, and no more shame, and no more guilt, no more tears. Because everything is made new. That's what you can expect to obtain, you see, at the throne of grace. Help in time of need. Help that's sufficient. Help that endures. Help that delivers us one day into the presence of God. Since we have, friends, let us then. I don't know where you are in your heart today. I don't know. I don't know your spiritual condition. I want you just to remember you are naked and exposed before the God who does. But it doesn't matter. Because wherever you are, this Jesus came for sinners. This Jesus came for weak people. This Jesus came for for lost people. And this Jesus is available today for you, whatever the circumstance in your life this morning, but you need to go to him. You need to take the hurt. You need to take the grief. The, you need to take the guilt and the shame and the sorrow, the betrayal, whatever it might be. You need, to, you need to take it to him, to the throne of grace, and then lay it down there and take back with you mercy and grace and God's promise to help. Are you weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Friend, take it to the Lord in prayer. It's what Christians do. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a friend we have in Jesus. 
all of our sins and griefs to bear. And what a privilege, Father, to carry all of it to you in prayer. Father, you know us. We're not, we're not okay in many ways. In spite of the appearances of success and ability, there's weakness and failure and guilt and shame and sorrow in every heart. And so we come to Jesus not because we figured it out, but we come to Jesus because we need a high priest. And we come to Jesus with the, the real truths about our need and our failure and our sin. But we come to the glorious reality of a great high priest who is able to act on our behalf and has done so with his own body and blood. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you save sinners and you save them to the uttermost. And that you sympathize with your children and you're able to care for us and comfort us. You're able to strengthen us with all the grace and help that we need to bring us to our eternal home. So, Lord Jesus, since we have you, I pray that we then would run with confidence in this life, knowing that we live under a throne of grace, and that God is, is our God. Oh, God, please apply this word this morning to the hearts of your people. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.